We are going to be in Mark chapter 10 today. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles or your digital phone apps, whatever it is, however you access the Word of God, uh, we are going to be in Mark chapter 10 today. We are going to be looking at the story of the rich young ruler. And I'm excited to get to speak to you all on that today. If we can all stand up together uh, for the reading of God's word, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. It says this, And as he, Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt down before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I've kept all of these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you, God, that we have accounts like this in the Bible that we can look at and that we can kind of examine and see where we can do better and what pitfalls we can avoid And so, God, as we appear into this conversation between this man and Jesus, Lord, just um, open our eyes, open our hearts, uh, that we might um, be able to analyze it correctly and analyze ourselves correctly. That we might be humble enough to say that we're wrong and that we might repent of where we need to repent of. God, I pray that that's true of our time today. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, y'all can have a seat. Well, have y'all ever wondered why some warning labels make it on the products? Right? Like there's, there's some warning labels that we get, like, you know, usually like on like pharmaceutical drugs and stuff like that. Like we get why there's warning labels on there. But then there's some products that we look at and we read the warning label and we're like, who in the world would think to use this product in this way? Or who in the world needs this warning with this product? So I have a, a few examples for you. So the first one, um, this is for a scooter. So does everyone know I'm talking about like a Razor scooter, you know, with the thing and the wheels and you get on it. Caution, this moves when used. Who, who would have thought, right? Who would have thought if you stepped on something with the wheels and pushed forward, it moves, all right? What about this one? So this is for a hairdryer. Instructions for use. Do not use while sleeping. Has anyone ever had that problem before where you tried to use a hairdryer while you sleep? If you do, then, then we might have some other issues. This one's for one of those sun shields that you put in your car. Warning, do not drive with sun shield in place. <laughs> Remove from windshield before starting ignition. Why are they putting these warning labels on these things? These seem so obvious and so common sense. The reason that they put it on there, you know why? Because someone out there has decided to try to use that thing in that way. 
Well, this past year, um, a, uh, we got to see this happen in real life, and uh, we get to see a new warning label created. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if you heard this story. There was this lady named Tessica Brown, and uh, she was getting ready one day to go out, and she was doing her makeup and her hair. And while she was doing her hair, she realized that she was out of hairspray. And so we can't leave the house without ha- hairspray. Uh, so uh, she just looks around her house and sees what she can find. Do you know what she grabs? Gorilla glue spray adhesive. <laughs> and by the way, this is real. You can go Google this. This girl decided, hey, it has the word spray in it. Hairspray has the word spray in it, so that should work. All right, so she uses Gorilla Glue spray adhesive as hairspray on her hair. She spends the next month trying to wash this out of her hair, and she couldn't do it. She eventually got to the point where she had to go um, to a plastic surgeon to get it surgically removed from her head. To be fair... To be fair, warning label, do not swallow, do not get in eyes, on skin, or on clothing. Says nothing about the hair, right? (laughs) So in her defense, they should have put that on there. So I can almost guarantee you, Gorilla Glue is going to add that to their warning label, do not spray in hair. They actually, um, uh, because they they didn't uh, put that on there, they were considering filing a lawsuit um, on that because they didn't put that on there. Uh, from everything that I've gathered, the lawsuit actually didn't go anywhere. But one of the things that she is doing, uh, this uh, Tesca Brown, is that uh, she has created a new hair care line. And so... If you want to use hair care products from the lady who put Gorilla Glue in her hair, you can go do that. Why are there warning labels out there? It's because no matter how obvious or how common sense it seems, there are people out there who will use the products in ways that they're not supposed to. Now, why I bring this up is because as we look at this passage of the rich young ruler, what I want to do is view this passage as a giant warning label to us. Now, if you know this passage, it's famously referred to as the rich young ruler. And there's lots of passages in the Bible where people interact with Jesus and their sins are forgiven and they are restored and they um, are able to trek back into life on fire for God. That is not this story. Like this person comes up to Jesus with seemingly good intentions, but he does not leave this um, on fire for God. He does not leave this locked arms with God doing his mission. He leaves this grieved. He leaves this heartached. Because um, at the end of this, he, he, what he decided to do is he decided to trade God for stuff. And so what I want to do today is I want to um, dig into this passage and I want to poke and prod at this passage so that we might be able to kind of slap some warning labels on things. And some of this stuff might seem obvious, but warning labels exist because someone out there is going to try to use it in this way. So I want to look at the mistakes that this guy made so that we may not hit the same pitfalls that he did. 
Now, uh, outside of the story of the rich young ruler, we actually don't know anything about him. This is the only time that he's brought up in the Bible. But through this conversation uh, with Jesus, we are actually able to gather a whole lot of information about this guy. And it's going to speak into a lot of areas in our lives, like of like how we raise our kids, how we interact with Jesus, how we view God, how we view ourselves, how we view the law, how we view our sin, how we view where our heart is, like all these things are going to be addressed in here. And so um, as we read through it, let us be weary, wary of hitting the same pitfalls that this guy did. So three warnings I want to give you from the rich young ruler. Let's dig into this passage. So verse 17 of chapter 10, we're going to get right back into it. Mark chapter 10, verse 17, um, it says this, As he, Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So let's actually stop right there for a second, because all the indicators so far are showing us that this is going to be a good conversation. Right, So this guy is seeking out Jesus. He's very respectful. He comes and kneels down before him. He addresses him as good teacher. He asks a pretty decent question of how do I obtain eternal life? All of the factors indicate that this is going to be a good conversation. But as Jesus starts to interact with him, he's going to start to poke and prod him. And as he does that, he's going to reveal that all of these um, good indications are actually very surface level indications. And what we're going to find out is Jesus is not really concerned with the surface level things. Jesus is more interested in digging underneath that to figure out what's in the heart of the matter. And that's what we have here. So this guy comes up to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the way that Jesus responds to this is going to seem like Jesus is disassociating himself from God. Right? So, so it says this in verse um, 18. Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God. And so it sounds like what Jesus is saying is, hey, only God is good. Don't call me good because I'm not God. That's what it, on, on the surface kind of looks like that. But one, that's not what Jesus says. And two, uh, the reason it's not that is because there's many other passages in the Gospels and the Bible as a whole where Jesus is um, claiming to be one with God, that he is claiming to be good, that he is claiming to be the sinless sacrifice that God sent. So it's not that Jesus is disassociating himself with God. I think what Jesus is doing here is he's trying to help this guy redefine what good means. And I think this is one of those cases where if we look at one of the other gospel's perspectives on this passage, it helps bring some more context to us. So in Mark, it says, uh, this man comes up and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In Matthew's version of this passage, the guy comes up and he says, teacher, what good deeds must I do to inherit eternal life? And so somewhere around this, I think Jesus' response is helping him redefine and get a proper definition of what good even means. It's like this guy's coming up to Jesus and he says, hey, you're good. You know the path to heaven. What good thing can I do so I can get to heaven? I want to be good like you're good. And I think Jesus is saying, well, you're being really loose with that word good. No one is good except God. But this falls on deaf ears with this guy, indicating that there's an underlying problem with this guy. Because he doesn't even mess with it. But Jesus 
humors him. And he says, if you want to know what it means to be good, here it is. And it picks up in um, verse 19. You know the commandments. You want to be good? You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, I find this funny. He said to him, teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. To which I say, bull. Right? It's like if you go up to your kid and you say, hey, did you clean your room? And they're like, yep. Did you? It's like, like or like, hey, uh, did you do your homework? And they're like, sure did. It's like, did you? And so that, that's kind of the, the, the response that I have to this, but Jesus doesn't go there. But what this does tell us is that this guy has a fundamental misunderstanding of his relationship to God. Right? Jesus just got done saying, hold on, no one's good but God but if you want to know what it means to be good, follow the law. And the guy's like, yeah, I did that. So what's this guy doing? He's like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good like God is good. This guy has a fundamental misunderstanding of who he is in relation to God. He doesn't seem to grasp that he is a sinner standing before a holy God. He seems to think that he can be good enough to stand alongside God. And that is the first warning of the rich young ruler is beware of thinking that you can be good enough. Beware of thinking that you can be good enough. And that was his problem. He had this mindset that if he just followed the law enough, that he can be good. And we know that this guy was raised in a Jewish home. Like he, when Jesus said, you know, follow these commandments, he says, I've kept all these things from my youth. So in all reality, this guy um, was a very well-behaved, well-respected Jewish boy um, who largely, uh, probably largely had a large part of the Old Testament memorized, and he had dedicated himself to the memorization and to, the, um, to following the laws of God. But I think the problem isn't that. Right? Because that's largely how we raise our kids, right? Like we raise our kids up to um, uh, follow the Bible, to uh, follow the commands of God. But I think the problem here isn't that he grew up knowing and following the commands of God. I think the problem is that there was a disconnect that happened along the way. Like his parents or, or whoever he was um, didn't sit him down and say, yes, we have the law of God and the law of God is good. And, and we, um, uh, this is the way that God designed for us to be in this way that uh, leads to flourishing of life. And so we follow these things because God is showing us what holiness looks like. But that's not the point. The point isn't for us to try to do these things to become good enough. The point of the law is to show us that we're not good enough. And that never happened for him. And so there was this, for him, this disconnect. There was the law of God that we follow, but it was void of God. And when you try to follow the law of God and you, bring, and you take out God from it completely, what it turns into is this Pharisee-like legalism in which you view the law as a pathway to becoming good enough, rather than viewing the law as a pathway to show you that you're not good enough. And that's the point of the law. The point of the law is to show us that we can never be good enough to stand alongside God. Romans 3.20 says this. It says, For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. So the whole purpose of the law isn't to show us, hey, here's how you can be justified. Here's how you can stand righteous before God. Just do these things. The point of the law is to show us that you can't. 
It's to show us that this is your sin. And then once we realize our sin and our standing before God, what it's supposed to do is point us back to God to say, I can't do it, but you can. And whenever you disconnect God from that, you miss it. And you start viewing the law as a way to be good enough, not as a way to show you who is good enough. And so we need to be careful that we don't miss this in the same way that we miss this. And we really need to be careful, um, as parents, that we don't raise our kids in this. Because if we're not careful, what will happen is we will raise our kids to do the exact same thing. We will raise them to follow the do's and the don'ts of the Bible, and we'll teach them to memorize scripture and sing songs about it. But um, it will very quickly become void of God um, except that God is this heavenly Santa who's checking the list to see who is good or not. And this is very dangerous because what it produces in our society is people who think they're Christians because they think they're doing enough good things. And the danger in that is that that is exactly what sends people to hell. I think one of the most tragic things that's going to happen on Judgment Day is that there are going to be people who are standing before God perplexed as to why they're not getting into heaven because they thought that if they did, just did enough good things, then he would let them in. But Jesus is going to look at them and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. You missed it. And Jesus says in Matthew 7 that that, that exact thing is going to happen. And so be warned, church, beware, church, of the thought that you can be good enough. And be careful as we raise our kids that we make sure that we're not teaching them that if you just go to church enough, if you just read your Bible enough, if you just pray enough, if you just give enough, then you'll be saved. Because that's not the, that couldn't be further from the truth. The Bible tells us that our most righteous deeds are but rags compared to God. And so that's not the way to do it. Beware of thinking that you can be good enough. God isn't interested in your good deeds. He's interested in more than that. Let's keep looking to see what that is. So this guy just got done saying that he, um, that he has spent his whole life dedicating himself to following the commands of God. Uh, which again, you know, <laughs> really? Uh, so, but Jesus comes in and responds in this way. So uh, verse 21 it says, looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him. So before we get into that statement, the statement that's about to come up is not a feel-good statement, right? Uh, the statement that's about to come out of Jesus' mouth is not going to cause this guy to walk away proud. It's not going to cause this guy to walk away feeling good about himself and happy-go-lucky. It's going to cause him to be grieved. It's going to cause him to be ashamed. And it's because Jesus is presenting to him the reality of the situation. Jesus is giving him a reality check. And that tells us that sometimes the most loving thing you can do for a person is be honest with them. Like, it, it blows my mind. Um, th this is why me and uh, my wife, Randy, uh, don't have a, have a no venting rule to each other. We, we don't vent to each other about other people because this, this, this temptation comes out, right? Like, like if someone's coming to you complaining about a problem, this temptation comes out and says, well, I'm your friend and I want to make you feel better, so I'm going to agree with you. Or I'm going to allow you just to rant and rave and the feeling in our society is that sometimes the most loving thing we can do for people is just agree with them. And Jesus 
portrays right here, sometimes the most loving thing you can do for someone is just be honest with them. Even if that means it's going to hurt them. Even if that means it's going to make them walk away ashamed. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do is present to people a hard truth and bring them into reality. And that's what Jesus does here. Uh, let's, let's look at what he says. So looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions, which I think is just a funny little verse right there. Like he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Have y'all seen that meme where like rich people like dry their tears with their hundred dollar bills? Um, that's what I think of there. So the hard truth that Jesus gave this guy is, hey, you think that you have dedicated your life to Jesus. You think that you have dedicated your life to God. You haven't. And I'm going to bring you into reality and I'm going to strip away all these superficial things that you've been doing to show you that you actually don't have much interest in following God. You have more interest in following your possessions. And that leads us to our second warning from the rich young ruler. Our second warning is this. Beware of placing something above God. Beware of placing something above God. So we see this situation uh, play out multiple times throughout the Gospels with different people. And a lot of them go pretty similarly where uh, they'll come up to Jesus and they're intrigued by him and they may even want to follow him. And so they come up and start asking and quizzing and, and all these different things. And Jesus doesn't respond with like open arms, like come. He actually responds by pointing out something very specific in their life. And it's different for every single person. But he points out something very specific in their life and then calls for them to give that thing up. Right? So for some people, um, it was like comfort and um, housing. For some people, it was their careers. Uh, for some people, it was their promiscuous lifestyle. For some people, uh, it was their family. For this guy, it was his possessions and his riches. And this guy comes up wanting to uh, know how to get to heaven, and Jesus has this knack of being able to peer into the hearts of the people in front of them and point out the very thing that they value most. And then he says, this, this thing that you love more than anything in life, let it go. And what usually happens after that isn't a, you're right. Usually it's a, I can't do that. Why does Jesus point these things out? And it's not about the actual thing, right? It's different with every single person, which tells me it's not actually about the thing. It's about something much deeper than that. Jesus points this stuff out. He points out what we value most because it gets to the very heart of the issue, which is the heart. Jesus is wanting our heart. That's what it means when he says, come follow me. He's saying, give me your heart. That's what God has always wanted from us. And that's why Jesus lovingly says to him, it's great that you want to follow me, but, but it's important for me to let you know that you really don't love me. That your heart really isn't for me. Your heart is for your possessions. And so before you can even follow me, you need to figure that out. And that's loving for, for Jesus to do that because the best thing he can do for that guy is not allow that guy to go on convincing himself that he's a follower of Christ because he's not. 
what it means to be a follower of Christ is to give our whole heart to Christ, and that's what it's always meant. This is why when uh, people came up to Jesus and they said, hey, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment of all of the commandments in the Bible? He responds with quoting uh, Deuteronomy 6.5, where he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's what it's always been about. God wants our hearts and all the laws and commandments can be summed up into that. And that's why Jesus is constantly calling for people to give up what their heart is attached to. Because God doesn't share us with people. When you enter into a a covenant with God, it is you are giving your whole heart to them. In the same way that when I entered into a covenant with my wife, Randy, this wasn't like a, hey, I'm giving you my heart. Also, that girl over there, she's looking pretty cute too. That's not how marriage works, right? Marriage is a, I'm giving you my heart, you're giving me your heart. In the same way, the covenant that we have with God is, I'm giving you my heart, you're giving me your heart. And so there's no sharing in this case. We need to figure out what it is so that we might be able to follow God well because Jesus doesn't want superficial followers. He doesn't want people who will give him vain vain glory uh, from their lips and vain commandment following in their actions. He wants their hearts. So whenever, um, a few years ago, me and Randy went to go buy a house. How, How many of you have gone through the house buying process? Right, it's kind of the worst thing in the world, right? So one of the things that I was deathly afraid of is that I was gonna buy a house that looked very nice, yet has lots of issues with it. Because you find that a lot, like when you're looking at houses, like you'll, you'll find these flips where these companies will come in, buy up the house, they'll throw a new coat of paint, some new floors, maybe some new lights, and then sell it to you. And the problem is, is that I don't have the ability to look past that. Right, like, so, so one of the houses that we were looking at, we got pretty deep into the process and we loved the house. This is this cute two-story little house. And then you walked in and it looked new. Like it was one of those things like, yeah, we got this. And we actually started through the process and we had an inspector come in and the inspector walked through the house and surveyed the house for about an hour. And then the next day uh, we met up to talk with him and he gave us 27 pages of everything that was wrong with that house. And all of a sudden, what looked nice and neat on the outside, all of a sudden revealed that there was a lot of problems on the inside. And I think that's what a lot of people want from Jesus. They want an easy fix and flip, right? Like, like they want, like there's um, holes in the wall, there's um, mold on the wall, there's soft spots from where there's a water leak behind it, rot in the woods. And they come up to Jesus and they say, I want you to paint. Why don't you paint this? Because it'll look nice, right? And it might look nice for a little bit, but they don't realize that there's rot underneath that. And Jesus is not a painter. Jesus is not a guy who's going to come and put a facade on it. In fact, he's the opposite. He's the inspector. He's the the contractor who comes in and rips the house down to the studs to figure out what exactly is wrong. He looks for the rot. He looks for the water leak. So that way he might be able to then repair that. And only then, after it's repaired and everything is fixed, can we start to put the walls back up? Can we start to paint it and figure everything out? This was the the big issue that Jesus had with the Pharisees. He called them whitewashed tombs. Because on the outside they looked great, but on the inside they were dead. And so why does Jesus 
call out these people and call these people um, to give up these things on their life because he's ripping down the house to the studs. And he's going to reveal the problems. And while a lot of people don't like that, it's necessary if you're going to follow Jesus because, again, the whole call of following Jesus is to give our heart to him. And he's going to reveal to you if your heart is in something else. And so for this guy, it was his possessions. And he turned away. And so one of the most loving things I can do for you right now, church, is to challenge you. Like, where is your heart? What are you placing above God right now? And again, it's different for each one of us. You may ask, well, how do I know? Well, in Matthew 6.21, Jesus said this. He said, uh, for where your treasure is, there also will be your heart. Where's your treasure? More modern way of putting it is um, if you want to know where your priorities are, like take a look at your calendar and your checkbook. Where do you spend all of your time? Where do you spend all of your money? That might be where your heart is. And Jesus is calling all of us to examine that and say, hey, your heart's here. You need to give that thing up. And beware. Hear the warning of the rich young ruler. Take care of it now because if you let that go unchecked, it can get to a point where your heart is so tied to that thing that you find the cost too high to let go. And so you end up just walking away from Jesus altogether. Beware of placing something above God. So uh, Jesus said these things to this guy, and the the rich young ruler uh, walked away grieved. Um, And then he turned to his disciples, and he said this very next thing. Uh, We pick it back up in verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? The the disciples were astonished at his words. And again, Jesus said to him, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's a lot of different debate on what this passage actually means. Some people uh, think that Jesus is vilifying and demonizing uh, wealth. And I don't think that's the case, mainly because there's other passages that don't seem to have a problem with wealth. Right? Um, so I don't think that Jesus is getting that here, but some people um, make this seem that, uh, that this is a physical camel uh, with a physical needle, like sewing needle, that they're trying to push it through. And then other people say, well, it's not a physical needle. There was this place near there, and there was this gate, and it was called the needle, and so the camel could get through there, but it was kind of hard. There's all these different discussions around this passage on what's going on. And, and honestly, we don't have time to get into it. And In reality, it doesn't even matter because at the end of it, it actually tells us what this passage means. So in verse 26, right after he says this, they, the disciples, were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? They didn't say to themselves, oh, only poor people can be saved. They didn't say to themselves, well, then how can rich people be saved? They said, how can anyone be saved? And that was the conclusion from Jesus' words here, is that um, if this is the case, if it is um, like threading a camel through the eye of a needle, if that's the case for what takes to get into heaven, then how can anyone get saved? And Jesus responds to them saying, yes, you're right. 
Verse 26, they were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? Verse 27, looking at them, Jesus said, with man, it is impossible. But with God, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. And so he confirms their conclusion. Yes, it is impossible for man to get to heaven. But it's not just man trying to get you in heaven. God is working with you, and that's what makes it possible. And this is a fitting um, uh, start of the conclusion to his conversation with the rich young ruler, and it actually brings us to our third and final warning, and that is beware of trying to do what only God can do. Beware of trying to do what only God can do. And that was the problem with the rich young ruler. From the outset, he comes up to him and he's saying, what good deed can I do to get into heaven? Which is the wrong question. Even if the question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's still the wrong question because you're asking, what must I do? Here's the answer. You can do nothing. You can't get to heaven. Like if it's up to you, you have a better chance of squeezing a camel through the eye of a needle than you getting to heaven on your own. But again, we're not on our own. God is with us. And with God, what was impossible is now not impossible. So for us, it is impossible for us to live a good enough life to get to heaven. It is impossible for us to follow the law well enough to get into heaven. It is impossible for us to thread the camel through the eye of a needle. However, it's not impossible with God. Jesus came down and he did live the good enough life to get to heaven. Jesus came down and he did follow the law completely to get into heaven. Jesus came down and he did the impossible. And because he came down, lived a perfect life, when it came time uh, to go to the cross, what he should have deserved was glory and honor. And he emptied himself out and took on our death on the cross. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, what was his righteousness is now offered to us. He takes our death, we get his righteousness. That's how you get to heaven. That's how the impossible is made possible. And so be weary, church. Beware of um, thinking the same things that this rich young ruler had. Beware of thinking that you can just be good enough because I promise you, if you have that mindset that you can get to heaven on your own, separate the love and grace of God, you will stand before Jesus one day perplexed as to why you're not going to get into heaven. Now, just in case some of you are here in the call of Jesus and you are thinking the same way as the rich young ruler where you're asking yourself, like, this is just too high of a cost. I can't give this up. Whatever it may be, maybe an addiction, maybe money, maybe a career, maybe things. You may be thinking to yourself, this is just too high of a cost. Let me share with you what Jesus says at the very end of this passage. He's talking to his disciples and he tells the, the, the disciples that whatever you give up for the sake of the gospel, you will receive a hundredfold on the other side. And so if you are mourning the loss or mourning the potential loss of what God is calling you to give up in your life, be encouraged that what God promises us on the other side isn't even worth comparing. We're going to look back and we're going to call this a joke. Like, really? 
We, we, we held off on following Jesus because of that? Because of Facebook? Because of games? Because of a car? Because of that boy or girl? Because of that career? What a joke when comparing to what awaits us. Let me pray that we heed the warnings of this rich young ruler. Lord, I thank you um, for this account. And I thank you, God, that uh, we have warnings in the Bible like this where we're able to peer into the heart and into the life of other people and see where they went wrong. And God, I pray that we would treat this like a warning label where um, we uh, don't make the same mistakes that they made, that we don't fall into the same pitfalls that they made, but we might see them walk into to the destruction and then turn and go the other way. God, I pray for the, the people in this room that, that all of us have our one thing that God is calling us to give up. And Lord, I pray that we would be humble enough to admit what that is and turn it over to you. And God, these aren't bad things, but when we place good things above you, it turns good things into bad things. And so God, I just pray that you would convict us of that and that we would be humble enough to repent. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room um, who hasn't answered the call for, you to, for them to come follow you. God, that you press into their heart right now and that they would say, yes, I'm willing to give you my whole heart, God. I'm willing to give you my whole life. I'm willing to lay it down at your feet and accept the grace and the mercy that you offer me. Not because of anything that I've done, but because of everything that you've done. I pray for anyone in this room, anyone online who's going through that, God, that they might follow through with that. We're gonna move into a time of invitation and this time is really uh, just to allow you the opportunity to respond to God. That God might be moving in each one of us differently some of us, he's just realigning our relationship with the law. Some of us, he's calling us to give up things that we've been holding on to for years. For some of us, he's calling us to salvation. Some of us maybe just need to pray where we are. Some of us maybe need to come up to the altar. Maybe you want to inquire more about what is the gospel and what does it mean to be saved? Man, we want to walk you through all these things. And so can we all stand up together? We're going to stand and we're going to sing. And this time is really just for you. Whatever God's calling you to do, we encourage you to do it.